And all these documents, to your point, all work together. You can't just have one on its own. We really want to see all these documents as a complete estate plan because that's how we feel we could best protect our clients. We want to protect you during life, protect you during incapacity, and we want to make sure all of your wishes are going to be adhered to at death. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. My name is Rachel Sass, and this episode may sound a little bit different for all of our listeners, and that's because your usual host, Brent Nelson, is on a much-deserved vacation this week. But nevertheless, we persist with the podcast, and so I am joined uh, by our good friend and colleague, Deborah Plume. Very happy to join. Yes, a much-needed vacation. Especially, he went to New York, right? The weather must be a little better as opposed to where we are, 100 degrees and counting. So I'm very happy that I could fill in a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. I, I actually messaged him the other day really quickly, and I'm like, all right, get, get back to the good food. And sure enough, he texted me a picture of a delicious plate of food. And very jealous. Very, very jealous. <laughs> yeah, I was jealous, actually, when my parents told me who are in New York that they're in the 65 degree weather. I said, you know, for the first time, I am wondering, I am wondering <laughs> what I'm doing in the desert. <laughs> but Right. Oh, my gosh. 65. That's chilly, right? Yeah. You, need, you need a sweater for that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's that's, true. That's funny. You know, it's funny. So we've actually only been what, in like the upper 90s this week. So our pool has actually been kind of cold. Like I go, normally we'll take our dogs out in the evening and they swim and we'll we'll jump in. And right around like 6, 6.30ish, it's actually a bit chilly then. I'm like, okay, maybe it needs to heat up just a slight bit. Not, not to the crazy heat, right? No 110 plus, but just get me a little over 100 so it's a little yeah. bit warmer for my pool. <laughs> I can understand that. I don't have a pool. I have a hot tub, so I don't need it any warmer. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's nice. That's definitely nice. All right. Well, so today I thought we would talk about the foundational documents of an estate plan. You probably get it. I get it all the time where, you know, clients or just, you know, random people that you meet and you tell them you're an estate planning attorney. And they're like, oh, oh, I need to do that what documents do I need? And then there goes the conversation. And so, you know, I, I thought it'd be a good idea just to go over what we kind of would recommend for our clients as the foundational documents. I don't care if a client is worth only $100,000 or if they're worth $100 million. I think that these foundational documents are really the building blocks of where you start. And from there, depending on your net worth and the situation, different facts and circumstances, uh, depending on what assets you own, your family circumstances, then it's going to change, right? And then we're going to build off of it. But these are kind of the, the building blocks of where everyone needs to start. Absolutely. And I do get that question quite a bit, you know, and I think as we go through this, and I'll, I'll sort of let you take the, the first starting point on these, but it is interesting how the foundational documents are, are a little bit more than someone might expect. You know, the, the basic question that I get is, do I need a will? Which, of course, I for most people asking me, the answer is yes, absolutely, uh, above a certain age. But but there's more to it than that. Right. There's there's documents that are important for for planning purposes that are relevant, not just after someone dies, but also during life. And and I think those are some really interesting points of reference for people to kind of understand the different roles that each document plays. Absolutely. So let's start off with when I always kind of go through this with a client, 
I start off with the documents that really matter during your lifetime. So powers of attorney. You know, everyone thinks estate planning is only when you pass away, but a lot about estate planning is during your lifetime and planning for incapacity. So if you have dementia, Alzheimer's, you're in a coma, for some reason you're unable to communicate decisions on your behalf, that's when powers of attorney are super important. So the two documents that we always recommend for our clients is having a healthcare power of attorney, and that also includes a living will in there, and then also a financial power of attorney. So it's kind of it, it's kind of self-explanatory. Your healthcare power of attorney as the document where you nominate an agent to make decisions, to make medical decisions on your behalf when you're unable to do so. And then likewise, your financial power of attorney, you uh, have a document that you appoint in an agent uh, that will make all your financial decisions on your behalf when you're unable to do so. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting and sort of important to keep in mind for these documents is there's not, it doesn't have to be the same person. I can understand, of course, for married couples, it's very typical to see the agent appointed is always, in the first instance, the spouse for both the medical decisions and financial decisions, which, of course, makes sense or is intuitive. But if you're not married, then the question is, is it going to be the same person? And some people, and I often find this to be the case, and I think they're nervous to say this, but I think it's more than okay, will say, you know, I really trust this person with a medical decision and they're much closer to me. They understand what my sensitivities are, what my wishes would be if I couldn't express them to a doctor, what my religious beliefs are, which are dealt with, of course, sometimes when it comes up, especially in end-of-life circumstances, decisions that can be made, especially in the living will. But you may not want that same person to be your agent for your financial power of attorney. And that's okay. And I think that that's something that I often find comes up with clients. Is it okay to have two different people acting? And then I always emphasize that it's it's more than okay. I get that all the time too. Yeah. It's, you know, my my doctor my my daughter's a doctor, my son's an accountant. So my daughter would be best to make medical decisions, my son would be best to make financial decisions. It's yeah, absolutely okay. And we always recommend too that our clients have uh, two to three successor agents as well. So like you said, Deborah, typically if, if you have a husband and wife, the, the spouse is going to be the first appointed agent. But what, let's just say your spouse is unable to act, then all right, let's, let's point a successor. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a brother or a sister or a parent. Let's also go down. I always tell my clients it's a horrible thing to think about, but let's think of the family crews gone wrong and so all of your really close family members, your your spouse, your child was, was on that cruise ship with you. Who's the next person then? So always having two to three alternates is a good, uh, good point of reference there. Now, I also mentioned the living will. We always use that in conjunction with our healthcare power of attorney. So it's just in one document together. Um, it doesn't have to be together. They can be separate documents. Living will is really important for your healthcare power of attorney and just for, for a little bit of, of guidance to your agent. So in your living will, you get to make those decisions on what your preference is for end of life matters. So do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want to be kept on artificially administered fluids? Do you want to be taken to a hospital? Really important questions that unless you've had that conversation with your appointed agent, they might not know the answers. And so this is almost an instruction list for them so that if you're not able to tell them what you want, they don't have to guess. The answer is already there on the piece of paper. And I think that's 
hugely important because it just takes that pressure off of the agent um, and so that they really know what your desires are and how they can fulfill those. I think the other thing to keep in mind, which, you know, is more relevant in some states, you know, I, I practice in Arizona and I also practice in New York and in New York, a living will is not binding legally. It's morally binding. And I know that that's not the case here or in other states, but I think it's important that even if you are in a situation where it might not be legally binding, it's really helpful for the agent to have that information. Because as Rachel said, again, if you haven't had those conversations or if you hadn't necessarily made that decision at a time where you were were really clear on it when you're signing the documents, but you're trying to think about it and piece it together, I think that having that written down and having that put in clear writing for whoever is put into the position of having to convey those wishes to a doctor, it's just very helpful for them. I always imagine in situations if I was appointed as an agent, I would want that guidance to feel as though I was truly, truly fulfilling the wishes and, and what the person wanted from me and what they wanted from their doctor. So I think it's I think those are really important documents to to be as detailed as you can. I think sometimes it's hard. I have clients saying, well, I'm not sure yet and I don't know. And of course, I always encourage them to realize that you can make changes. You can those changes can evolve. You can resign. You can have conversations with your agent. There's ways to make sure that these documents live and breathe, so to speak, with you. But I think in the first instance, it's good to be as detailed as you possibly can, at least when it comes to the the healthcare decisions, which is really where these sort of nuances come up. Completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a client I saw in their file, they had changed their healthcare power of attorney eight times since they originally had done it. And we had been representing them for for decades at this point. So it makes sense. But to your point there, if life changes, your documents can absolutely change too. It's not set in stone, it's completely fluid. So going on then to a document that is active during your life and at death would be a revocable trust. And I wanna preface, preface this by saying, you know, we are practicing in Arizona and Deborah, you're practicing in Arizona and New York, uh, but Arizona law right now, Arizona is a community property state. We've mentioned this before on the podcast. And so typically you want to take advantage of all the benefits of community property. And so for couples, we would recommend a joint revocable trust. So this is a trust uh, that exists during your lifetime. And then upon death, it contains the provisions in there on how you want your assets to be distributed. I think to to go back to the idea of, you know, New York versus Arizona, yes, we're at a community property state, so joint trusts for New York, for my New York clients, if they listen to this ever, we don't, we don't do those in New York, but they are, they, but the same principles apply. These revocable trusts are useful in life and also after you pass. So in, in some cases more so in life here than in New York, and that has to do with a very complicated real estate issue in New York when it comes to actually transferring real estate into a revocable trust, which we won't get into, but the same principle applies that these are documents that really can be used both while you're alive and also when you, and of course, when you pass. And for those documents, I think it's also important to, to start thinking about those things sooner than people might think, because it helps again in a situation I use, by the way, the family airplane gone wrong, airplane trip, um, the crash, you know, that wipes out everybody. Um, which, of course, is an important thing to think about when you want to know what, where, where do you want all of your things to go? What do you want to happen to your property? And by having that spelled out for when you die, but also having it in the trust and having this trust document prepared and ready so that all of your assets are in the trust, 
you you make the process just easier for for you while you are alive and managing your property and then for anyone who has to take care of your property when you pass. And as Rachel said in the beginning of this podcast, that's important regardless of the value of of your estate, of, of your property. Um, I think that's specifically true in states like here in Arizona, where people do regularly fund their trust. That's particularly relevant it, that no matter what the value of your estate is, it's good to have the trust prepared and it's good to have it funded. And I think that that's something that people should keep in mind, you know, that this isn't just for people who are extremely wealthy. This is really for anyone who wants to make sure that their assets are clearly titled and clearly put into an order so that anyone who would have to manage them on your behalf can do so with ease. Absolutely. I think the biggest myth that I, I always hear all the time is if I've got a will, that's that's all I need, right? Like to your point earlier, everyone just thinks of the will as the one document. And to me, I really think your trust, you really, you want the trust and obviously you want the powers of attorney and we do want a will as well, but the trust is, is so pivotal. And you know how why it's it's so beneficial we've we've again talked about this on the podcast before but it's it's just such an important uh topic to to stress on we'll keep stressing it here which is when you've got a revocable trust it helps during your lifetime one on that issue of incapacity planning that i brought up earlier if you are unable to manage your assets so any assets that you funded into the trust let's say we've we've deeded your house into your trust We've put your bank accounts in the name of the trust. If you are unable then to make decisions on your behalf, the successor trustee can immediately step into your shoes and begin to manage the trust property. You don't have to worry about uh, having to deal with a conservatorship or a guardianship proceeding, um, dealing with the court process. It's a lot more streamlined process. And, you know, we talked about the the powers of attorney and having an agent, that's great as well. Your agent is going to be managing all of your non-trust property, but your trustee, whoever the successor trustees are that you name in your trust document, they're going to be the ones who are managing all of your trust assets. And again, trust also has a bunch of other benefits in addition to the, the biggest being incapacity planning. A trust also avoids probate. Arizona, Probate is not too terrible here, but it, it is a court process. You do have to, uh, you know, file documents with the court, let the courts know, you know, what the assets are of the estate, things like that. It's a no matter what, you've got at least a six month timeline on that. With a trust, you can bypass a probate if you fund all of your assets into the trust. So that's a big thing. A lot of people have this this fear of probate and having to have their loved ones go through that when they're passed. And a trust can really bypass all of that. It also keeps a lot of your information private. And that's that's really big. If you've just got a will and you're going to probate that will, again, with the court process, your will becomes a public document. So all of the provisions on who gets what, that's now out there as a public document. So a trust, again, you can avoid the, the court process so you don't have to disclose those provisions. So it just helps keep a little bit more privacy uh, with your estate planning, which I feel like a lot of people would want. You know, this is very private nature. You're talking about all of your property, all of your assets, who gets what. You know, if, if one child gets 80 percent and one child only gets 20 percent, you know, maybe that needs to be a little bit more private. Um, so a trust does help give you a little bit more of the privacy protection as well. 
You know, I think that privacy point is actually really important to hone in on right now when you think about such a digital world that we live in. I mean, I know that that could happen to any document and that documents generally are digitized. And so there's there's questions about that. But I do think that as privacy becomes harder and harder to obtain, you know, that that trust privacy, that added layer is is helpful. And and I also think that about the probate process, you know, I always, this is another thing I talk with my clients about, it's, it's putting yourself in the shoes of whoever the agent that you appoint is going to be. You know, if you were that person, what would you want? You would want an easier process, preferably to avoid probate, very clear instructions. And I think all of these documents amount to clarity for whoever is going to be assisting you, whether you're incapacitated or whether you've already passed. You know, and in terms of appointing people, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this with the power of attorney and healthcare proxies, that if it's a married couple, if it's joint trust, you know, you have co-grantors, co-trustees during your life. But then if one of you passes, it, it makes sense that with spouses, it would be the other spouse is the remains the trustee during their life. But after that, then the question becomes, who do you trust to, to really manage all these assets when you've both passed, if you're married. If you're if you're not married, then the question can also become, who would you like to take that position on? And is it necessarily a child? Would you rather it be someone who's not your child because you have three children and you're not really sure you want to pick one of them over the other? Do you want someone who's sort of a neutral party? I also have clients who really, really prefer having a trust company or a bank serve as their agent for their trust because they don't want to choose a friend or a family member because that adds another layer of privacy and ensures that that trustee who is corporate um, for a fee, of course, uh, can can act on their behalf without necessarily having to relay every single detail to a family member. So I think those questions are really important and and come up, of course, a lot. And in terms of, you know, who between all these choices, do you want some overlap? You know, I see a lot of clients, I recommend that their powers of attorney, you know, whoever their successor is, if it's after your spouse or whoever, if it, you don't have a spouse, whoever your agent is, I often see overlap of trustee positions for your trust and your financial powers of attorney. I see that more often than I see an overlap between the trust and the healthcare proxy and then someone different on the power of attorney. That's just my experience. But I think I think because that those all relate to financial questions. But I think those again, the issue of who you want to manage that is important. And then making it as clear as possible for that individual or company to do so is really what a lot of these documents amount to. Yeah, really, really good point there. It's really there's when I tell a client, you know, here's here's kind of all the different options you have. Honestly, I can't name them all. <laughs> I'm going to give you like the top, I'd say three or to five um, options that I see picked. But why don't you tell me what you want? And I'll tell you if I can do it. That's really what it is, right? There's could be you can have co-trustees, you could have three people. I don't usually recommend that, but I've seen it before. Um, to your point, you have corporate trustees, you have private fiduciaries, a law firm, an attorney can serve as a successor trustee. So really there, there is an endless list of possibilities. It's whatever works best for the client and really just them deciding what, what they feel comfortable with. So I think we've beaten a dead on a trust now at this point. <laughs> Hopefully everyone realizes how much we, we we are very passionate about trusts. But I think then the other main document that is just really part of a good estate plan, a good solid estate plan would be the pour over will. So you mentioned the will earlier, Deborah. We say pour over will because we have a trust involved. So typically your will, you know, says, you know, I, Rachel, of sound mind and testament, blah, 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 blah. Everyone knows the story. 
And typically in your will, if just a normal, simple will, you know, you would say how you want all of your assets to be distributed. But since you have a trust and that trust document is going to be the one that controls and we're going to we have put all of your assets into your trust. And so it's going to be distributed. However, that agreement says your will is just kind of going to be the uh, almost like the supporting actress to the trust. And so what the will is going to say is that any property that's in your estate, so i.e. any property that didn't get funded into your trust, either intentionally or accidentally, that's going to pour over into your trust. So all of it's going to go in there. So it's really as just a safety net that everything's going to go into your trust. So again, your trust document's the one document that everyone's going to look at um, for instructions on how you want all of your assets to be distributed. We don't have to look at any other documents. I like the supporting actress metaphor. It sounds exactly what I would say of what the pour over will is. And I think this really emphasizes what we've been saying about the trust be adding a layer of ease of administration, so to speak. If you have the trust and then you have a will that says everything pours over into it, that will, that, that will can stay the same. So your wishes may change over time. You may want to make amendments to your trust, which we do all the time. But that will, generally speaking, of course, there are updates to will as, wills as well. Lots of boilerplate and general powers that we update regularly. But overall, what that will says is, as Rachel said, anything that didn't get funded goes in to the trust. And what's really great is that then if you change your mind and you change a wish or a distribution or a note that you wanted to put into your trust about how your property should be treated when you pass or if you're incapacitated, that change can be made by an amendment. It can, If it's a simple change, it can be just a one-page amendment changing whichever paragraph you're changing. If it's a complete overhaul, it would be an amendment and restatement and it'd be a more, a more complete document change. But those are, those are relatively easy modifications in terms of signing because you can sign as the grantor or joint grantors if your spouse is and it's a joint trust in front of a notary. What, whereas a will requires a notary and two witnesses and it's a bit more of a process. And another layer of sensitivity with wills is that courts are very picky about wills where they seems like there have been changes. So if you've unstapled the document or in, in some firms, they even still use the wax seals, you know, to make sure it's the final will. And if you've changed it or it seems changed, they can be sometimes a little bit finicky about wanting to make sure that that's the actual document, the final version. There really, there really is something about wills and, and the surrogates courts that treat them a little bit differently than other documents. Whereas a, a trust, which doesn't have to be dealt with at all by the surrogates court can be changed a bit more easily during your lifetime. And so I think that's another layer of just making it easier for you and for whoever your agent is to kind of to understand your wishes as they evolve. Really good points there. Yeah, ab absolutely. Really good points. You know, and I think to most clients, you're most likely going to change something at some point, right? Either an individual has passed away, they're, they're not going to be close to you, so you need to switch out a successor trustee, or you know maybe you need to change distributions to uh, your children, you want to add someone in there. Typically, changes are going to be made. And so what is going to be most, uh, what, what's going to be the most streamlined procedure in the future? Uh, what's going to be most cost effective in the future? That's a big thing everyone takes into consideration. And so again, that's that's just another benefit. So I think that's that's pretty much all I have on Parwood. Can you think of anything that we missed? No, I really think that's that's definitely what I would say about them. You know, I think that they're obviously, you know, I don't want to 
I don't want people to take away from this conversation that when you ask me, do I need a will? The answer is no, you definitely do. It's just that we're emphasizing that the way to execute and put into into play what you what a client typically would think of as a will is really two documents. They work together, but uh, I think most estate planning attorneys at this point would be working with the poor of a will and a trust as opposed to just a will. There are times, of course, and I have done this actually recently for clients where they just they're not ready to fund everything in a trust. They're a little bit hesitant about the paperwork. They're not really sure that they understand it fully or can appreciate the differences. And that's okay. You know, I, I don't want to also come out of here and say there's there's necessarily something wrong with deciding you just want a will in terms of expressing your wishes for after you die. But I do hope that we have at least emphasized the benefits and why we would prefer using the pour over will combined with the revocable trust. Yeah, really, really, really good points there. Absolutely. Every every client's different. Every situation is different. We have our reasons why we like documents a certain way, um, but it really depends on, on every client's uh, situation and, and what they have going on in their life and what they what they hope to achieve for their legacy. And all these documents, to your point, all work together. You can't just have one on its own. We really want to see all these documents as a complete estate plan because that's how we feel we could best protect our clients. We want to protect you during life, protect you during incapacity, and we want to make sure all of your wishes are going to be adhered to at death. And so that's really kind of what goes into a foundational, um, all the foundational documents of an estate plan. And what we really hope to talk to the clients about in our first initial meetings and really understand what their goals are. And then we can really put those ideas into the documents and get them implemented. Thank you again for having me on. I'm really glad I got to got to take part in this one. So thank you, Brent, for being on vacation. And I hope you enjoyed it. And it's it's always good to sort of reha- reiterate the significance of these documents. I think I think it's an important point. And I hope I hope everyone enjoyed and took something away from it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Deborah. Appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.